from the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Host, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, June 15th. Today, why businesses are considering a $15 wage, how Congress is dealing with safety threats, and the start of luxury space travel. So the last couple months, amid so much optimism in the country, as we're reopening and industries are spreading their wings and restrictions are falling, we've started to see a lot of complaints from businesses and industries like hotels, manufacturing, food service, that they're having a really difficult time finding workers to apply and then staff jobs. And these are typically low-wage jobs that, that we're hearing the complaints about. Um, and many businesses saying that it's threatening their ability to recover and, and grow again after obviously a really, really brutal year business-wise. My name is Eli Rosenberg, and I cover work and labor for the business desk at The Washington Post. We wanted to look at the role that pay plays in all of this. And so we interviewed 12 businesses that had raised their wages to $15 an hour or more as a way to deal with this. And the results, at least of our sort of anecdotal survey, were pretty striking. And what is going on here? Like, why is it that all of a sudden it's so difficult for businesses to be able to find people to work for them? This is one problem that's come up where we're still trying to figure out exactly what's going on. So there's this idea from many business owners and groups and Republicans saying that enhanced unemployment benefits are to blame. People who are on unemployment are now receiving an extra $300 a week on top of whatever they're getting from the state. Uh, And there's an argument out there that that is disincentivizing people from getting back out in the world and getting back into work. If you talk to um, any labor economists, clearly there's a range of factors that are affecting people right now. Many schools had yet to reopen before they were out for the summer, meaning that many people had childcare responsibilities. There's still a question about whether people have lingering health concerns about returning to workplaces that rely on face-to-face interaction. A sizable, I think, around half of the workforce aged population in the United States is still not fully vaccinated. There might be competitive pressure from companies like Walmart and and, uh, Costco that have raised wages above $15 an hour. So overall, there's just something going on out there that's a result of all these factors that is making it harder for for businesses to fill these positions right now. Eli, you know, I I feel like I have started to notice this in day-to-day life. Like every time I go to pick up takeout, there's a sign on the door that says help wanted. If you're, you know, if you want to do delivery, if you want to be a chef, if you want to cook, whatever, that like we need people here. It's just really interesting, especially in comparison with where we were at a year ago, where we had a lot of concerns about levels of unemployment, how quickly it's bounced back in the other direction. And it also seems like it's giving people, workers, the ability to be a little choosier than they were before about where they want to work. Yeah, I think this surprised everyone. It's really confusing time because we still have millions of people who are out of work. We're still down more than seven and a half million jobs from where we were before the pandemic. And that number would be even higher if you consider all the jobs that would have grown in a normal economy. So you would think 
on just a supply demand spectrum that there would be a lot of people jumping at taking these positions. But actually, we've seen the opposite. Like you said, we see businesses just increasingly desperate to hire people offering really generous hiring bonuses. Again, some businesses doing things like raising wages, just bending over backwards. And I'm curious, what are some of the conversations that you've had with business owners about how they have been addressing this problem and trying to get people who are willing to work for them? Yeah, so I talked to 12 businesses from around the country. The majority were in food service, particularly spent a lot of time talking to Patrick Whalen, who's the CEO of a small restaurant group in Charlotte and Charleston. You know, he sort of clued me into the whole arc of this problem for the restaurant, sort of racking their heads in February and March with the inability to hire and then sort of going back to the drawing board and, and coming up with this plan to you know, not only give their workers a, a raise, but also find a way to get more tips to typically non-tipped workers in the restaurant that they believe has really, really turned things around staffing-wise for their company and, and also increased sales. It's called the tip the kitchen model. And basically, from a, from a simplicity standpoint, what it does is it, is it provides the guests an opportunity to leave a gratuity for the kitchen. We guarantee $15 an hour for everyone, no matter what. Our minimum wage company-wide is $15 an hour. Raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour at the company and also created a program where diners could share tips with back-of-the-house staff, like dishwashers and line cooks, and again, completely solved their, their hiring woes. Like, how did Patrick reflect on this experience of all the steps that it took to be able to get people to work for him? I think he had a sense of pride as a business owner that his restaurants were pretty much fully staffed up while his competitors were having a lot of problems. I mean, a lot of restaurants are just, are forced to just hire anybody that comes in because they just need people. And if, if we were doing that, we would be, we, I mean, we would be overstaffed because our team is just making so much money, frankly. He had raised the minimum wage of the company, which obviously increased his labor costs, but actually sales at the restaurant had increased more proportionally. So the labor costs for the restaurants had actually gone down as a portion of its total cost because sales had gone up more. So for him, it, I think he, he really looks at this as a win-win. You know, we have to be careful talking about businesses like his and as well as all the ones we interviewed that this is, you know, not a scientific study yet. There hasn't been a full sort of analysis right now of all the many issues affecting the worker shortage and that what works for these businesses isn't necessarily something that would work for every single business out there. There were a couple businesses, I, uh, I believe that three of the 12 we spoke to did have to raise prices um, pretty minimally, but still did have to raise prices for consumers and two had to cut some staffing hours as well to kind of balance out the labor's costs. But for, for Waylon, this was really a win-win because uh, the, you know, the money he was making in his restaurants had actually gone up as customers were getting better service and giving better reviews and presumably able to spend more with, with more help on hand. You know, in some ways, this seems like simple economics, right? Supply and demand, and that if there is less of a supply and people who want to work, then people are going to have to pay more to get those people. But I also wonder how much of this is a difference in the attitudes towards workers, especially people who have traditionally worked low-paying jobs or in the service industry, that a lot of those people aren't treated well 
And in some ways, it feels like paying them more and just respecting more of the work that they do and how important it is, is part of what is the the challenge here. I think that's that's right on, um, you know, to focus specifically on restaurants and food service. And I say this as a former restaurant worker, there are a lot of issues, labor issues in that in that sector. There's wage and tip theft are pretty rampant. There's a lot of scheduling chaos. You show up at work one day, you get sent home with, without getting your shift or getting your money. And I think just, you know, for workers in general, the pandemic really revealed how you know, risky and, and precarious some lines of work were. And so, yes, I think there is an evaluation going on right now about what's worth doing, what's something that you need to do to support yourself. So is there an expectation that the solutions that business owners are putting in place now are going to end up being more long-term practices, like more people will just be paying their workers $15 an hour in the long run and giving them bonuses and other benefits for signing up to work? Or is there a concern that this is going to go away a few months from now if the the kind of gap between the demand for labor and the supply of labor starts to equalize. Right. No, it's really interesting right now. We've spent so much time thinking about workers and essential workers and the sort of difference in privilege afforded to people who are able to do their jobs from home or remotely the last year. And now we see workers for whatever reason or a variety of reasons, having some more leverage. We see measurements of wages rising significantly in certain industries, something that even in the really robust economy before the pandemic was not happening and was sort of confusing uh, labor economists. But like everything in the pandemic, we are kind of emerging into this new world. We don't exactly know what our surroundings look like or what's a temporary thing or what's a long-term phenomenon. We're at a really hopeful, optimistic moment right now in the country. We're, at, we're adding on average about 500,000 jobs a month the last couple months, which is a significant increase from uh, late last year in the winter. But there are a lot of hopes that we need to keep that pace up. We need to continue to get back these seven and a half million jobs um, to kind of get back, get the country really, really back on track. You know, maybe the job market picks up, hiring accelerates, these industries get back on their feet and we forget all about this couple month debate about the worker shortage. Or maybe this is a really sort of long and, and um, challenging slog to gain back those jobs due in part to the fact that there's a new dynamic and a new kind of compact between workers and employers, in which case, you know, we'll be talking about this for a long time. Eli Rosenberg reports on work and labor for The Post. This story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. So lawmakers are actually back in town this week after, for the first time, going back into their districts and and the ability to actually be able to go out and hold in-person events. 
a lot of the pandemic restrictions that kept them doing virtual town halls has now been lifted. And even though that's the case, many Democrats in particular haven't really ventured out yet to hold many town halls and and be part of voter gatherings simply because they still face a lot of uncertainty when it comes to security. Mariana Sotomayor covers Congress for The Post. And after really doubting their security back at home, House members are now coming back to the Capitol where they already feel a more tense environment and also wonder if they are secure at a place that was vandalized by insurrectionists just a couple months ago. So lawmakers aren't necessarily strangers to threats from phone calls, receiving nasty messages on social media. That is unfortunately a world that we now live in, whether you are a Democrat or a Republican member of Congress. But those threats now are taken even more seriously. The Capitol Police has actually vouched and said that not only they themselves need to have more police for protecting members, but they've also said the reason why that is the case is because Threats have actually multiplied. They've quadrupled in just the five months of this year alone. Compared to last year, already threats have gone up 107 percent against members of Congress. And do you know more about like the nature of these threats or are they being targeted at specific members of Congress? I'm sure you can think of some members who are getting them, those especially in the spotlight, like Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who was just ousted from Republican leadership, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But I've talked to many members, especially Democrats, who I'm sure a majority of the country doesn't even know who they are. But just because they have a D next to their name or for the sake of Republicans, just because they have an R next to their name, they worry, for example, for their district staff. They worry that maybe their offices aren't protected enough. So so they're actually paying out of their own campaign funds, which is legal. But some are also paying from their own personal banking accounts to protect their district offices, to add security cameras and enhance, for example, their windows to their homes just because that threat lingers. And it really wasn't sufficient. I mean, I know during the impeachment trial, um, I had to get, you know, security and we were able to, We, I mean, we totally upgraded right. everything around the house. We had new cameras, we mm-hmm. had everything and then we had police there every day. But there, you just that is Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Right. Um, But it's important that people see that we're not cowed by this, you know, and we're going to continue to go out there and and meet with our constituents and fight for our constituents Mm -hmm. and stand up for what's right. And and that's the challenge, right, is that I would imagine that there is an impulse to try to not take these threats seriously or try to not let them dictate what a lawmaker's behavior will be, what they'll say or do or where they'll go. But at the same time, I mean, there is a history of some of these threats being carried out. I think when you talk about the fears of lawmakers, my mind immediately goes back to 2017 when Republican lawmakers were were shot and wounded at a baseball game. An all-out gun battle. As Capitol Hill police and Alexandria officers engaged a lone gunman, 66-year-old James Hutchinson, targeting Republican members of Congress who were practicing for a charity baseball game. It's definitely a mindset of better safe than sorry. And again, they get these phone calls, they get emails, they get all of that on a daily basis. But 
what if one of those becomes real and not just becomes an attack on them, but a potentially attack on their staff, their family or fellow members of Congress? And are members of Congress pulling together to try to help protect each other or to kind of reduce some of this political polarization that is leading to these threats? It's been more of a support system among Democrats in particular who were in the chamber on January 6th. They do face and some have been candid about the fact that they have some form of reliving what happened that day and and that there's triggering points whenever they hear of violence or they read about it. They go to each other. They seek out each other through uh, a text group that actually Congresswoman um, Pramila Jayapal made. I think um, the gallery group that I started after mm-hmm. uh, after the insurrection has been really amazing. I'm so glad that 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 I pulled that together and that it's you know we get together for meals, we check yeah. in on each other when there's a traumatic thing that happens that reminds us of January mm-hmm. 6th. The text chain goes crazy, yeah. and so but you know a texting group or a shoulder to cry on can only go so far, right? Members of Congress are trying to pass a security supplemental bill that would put money to fund not just Capitol Police and try and make up for a lot of the financial losses that were incurred on January 6th, but $21.5 million is actually allotted to member security. But that also faces a really narrow passage in Congress. It barely passed the House after some progressive Democrats said that any kind of funding the police is something that they're against. And it really faces headwinds, not just by Senate Republicans, but also Senate Democrats on the scope of that legislation. But that right now seems to be at least the most concrete proposal to try and make sure that threats are not just prevented, but also there's a proactive movement really by police and security to make sure that no one is harmed. But what about the ways in which these threats are encouraged from the inside, like from other members of Congress? Yeah, you know, I have been covering Capitol Hill for several years now, and there is a collective agreement that we haven't seen these kinds of tensions before. And One perfect example is I saw Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene storm after Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She ran after her off the House floor just last month after a series of votes, and she never launched at her or grabbed her, but she was verbally harassing her, calling her a terrorist for supporting the Black Lives Matters movement and Antifa. It's so beyond the pale that you wonder, is this, it probably is a matter for the ethics committee. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi talked about this moment in a press conference. This is beneath the dignity of a person serving in the Congress of the United States and is a cause for trauma and fear among members, especially on the heels of an insurrection on which the minority in the committee yesterday denied ever happened. It didn't happen. Congresswoman Green very much afterwards talked to reporters and said, I'm going to continue to do that. I'm going to keep holding, in her point of view, members of Congress accountable. These are the real questions that need to be asked, not of me for being willing to talk to members of Congress about these issues. See, that's bipartisanship, talking to one another, debating policy for the American people. And I think that that speaks to the the 
political opportunism here, right? That as much as there are members who are scared about their lives, their families' lives, the safety of their staff members, I think that there are other members of Congress who recognize that this environment of polarization, of this very visceral anger at at members of Congress is good for them politically. Yeah, it's it definitely riles up their base. And that is something that even Congresswoman Green's office touts when you ask them about, well, don't you think that this could have been a step too far? They say, you know, every time that she speaks out, she gets emails, she gets letters, she gets people posting on her social media pages, thanking her in some ways for taking on the Democrats. So what do you think it says about the state of our democracy that there is now a real physical threat for lawmakers and elected officials to essentially do their jobs? You know, another component of this is besides the threats themselves is a large reason why this is happening is because they can't necessarily agree on a basic plain set of facts. I've said that I think the biggest national security threat we face right now mm-hmm. is the fact that Republicans refuse to admit or are rewriting history to say that the insurrection never yeah. happened. I mean, if we don't get to the bottom of all the pieces that mm-hmm. allowed this to happen, it's why the security supplemental is so important. It's why the the um, the commission is so important. We have mm-hmm. to get to the bottom of that. Otherwise, this is going to happen again. Yeah. And until they can see eye to eye just on basic facts, it's going to make everything else that you have to do, legislating, negotiating, compromising, that much harder. First and foremost, I think we need to return to decorum in this House. This is Congresswoman Susan Wild, a Democrat from Pennsylvania. And I don't think that that's just like we need to hold hands and I think House leadership needs to take a position. And that goes so far as to... And, you know, I've asked Republicans, I've asked Democrats, it doesn't matter where they are on the spectrum, how do you get back to working together? And at times, they look at me and they you can tell they don't have the answer. Mariana Sotomayor is a congressional reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Renny Svornovsky. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. So Chris, if I wanted to go to space right now, 
how much would that cost me? Well, it depends on where you want to go. This is Chris Davenport. He reports on NASA and space travel for The Post. Virgin Galactic was selling tickets for about $250,000. That would take you just to the edge of space and back. And you'd be in space for about four minutes. That's the budget version, right? Well, yeah. And it's not even $250,000 anymore. (laughs) They stopped selling tickets. They're going to come back on later this year. And the expectation is for those trips, it's going to be closer to $500,000. But if that's too, you know, like $500,000, like that's nothing. Drop in the bucket. Drop in the bucket. So if you really want to spend some money and you want to go to orbit and say you want to spend a week on the International Space Station and you want to go big, that'll cost about $55 million. So there's a little bit of a range there. (laughs) So over the weekend, Blue Origin, which is the space company that is owned by Jeff Bezos, who also owns The Post, this company like auctioned off a seat for its first human space flight, right? And so the person who won the seat will be riding alongside Jeff Bezos and also Jeff Bezos's brother into space. How much did that seat go for in this auction? It went for $28 million. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was a huge amount. Um, again, this is a suborbital space flight. I mean, this is even shorter than what Virgin Galactic does. It's a rocket. And all told from like launch to touchdown, we're talking 10, 11 minutes with, again, oh about gosh. four minutes in space. Wow. But clearly somebody was out there who wanted to pay a premium to be on Blue Origin's first crewed mission and to fly with Jeff Bezos and his brother, Mark. And we're sitting there watching the auction go. And it kept going up and up and up. And it was really like a real auction, right? It was like someone was buying a used car. They were just like putting out these numbers. 7,200,000. million two, Sean. Now 7,300,000. And 7,300,000. Now is the time I have 7,200,000 bid. I'm looking for 7,300,000. Johnny says 7,300,000, right? 8 million. I like the way your bidders are thinking. Now 8 million. Like 11 million, 12 million, you know, 20 million, 21 million, 22 million. It was crazy. Yeah. And he literally said like going once, going twice, going three times. Sold $28 million. And and the price kept going up and up. It was really wild. And it, it actually, it astounded the people at Blue Origin. Now we should know too, that this money goes to benefit Blue Origins Foundation, which is, you know, to help kids get into STEM. But still, it's it's an astounding amount of money. And it feels like this is a big turning point in the future of what space and space travel and space exploration might look like. Because in the past, you know, space was basically the domain of people who were highly trained astronauts, years and years of expertise and work going into their ability to go into space. But now it seems like space is going to be the place where if you're really wealthy, you can just have that experience without any of the uh, the training or the kind of representation of humanity coming behind it. 
Yeah, I mean, for now, it's for the very, very rich. There's some talk that the more they fly, the more routine this gets, the price will ultimately come down. You'll see a democratization of space. We're clearly not there yet. But the other thing we should remember is, you know, we tend to romanticize space travel. You know, you see that in movies and popular culture, and people are very optimistic, and it's very inspiring. That's all true, and that's great. But the other fact of the matter is, this is risky. Hmm. This is really dangerous, right? And so people are like, you know, spending all this money to go to space, but, you know, they're risking their lives, right? I mean, the companies want to make these spacecraft and these rockets as safe as possible, but this is still a very dangerous enterprise. And I don't think we should forget that. What do you think are the potential downsides for this sense that the space industry is now opening up as a form of luxury travel? Well, so, you know, this goes back to actually NASA wanted to do this. NASA wanted to fly ordinary people to space. They were going to fly people on the space shuttle. Uh, They called it the shuttle for a reason. They thought it was going to fly so frequently. There was no way, you know, they could just fill all the seats with their professional astronauts. So they were going to take ordinary citizens. They started with a teacher and then a journalist and then maybe it was going to be an artist. And, you know, the challenger blew up and Krista McAuliffe, the teacher, died. And that was a real sense of these were ordinary people who are going. And the people who are going today are not. They're the uber rich. We're talking about companies that are run by billionaires, right? It's billionaires flying other billionaires. And we're already a society that's broken down along, you know, race, class, gender, politics, and money. And the gap between one percenters and the rest of society is pretty big. And space is supposed to be this big, unifying, optimistic, you know, going out the final frontier. We're all doing this together. And yet, you know, here we are. It's the early stages and we're and we're not. We're not all doing it together. It's sort of an us and them. And unless they can find a way to take more people, it's going to continue to be that way. Chris Davenport covers space travel for The Post. This story was produced by Emma Talkoff. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. One of the privileges of being the host of a podcast like this one is sometimes I get to meet or hear from listeners who find our show a really valuable part of their life. They say they listen every day or that they heard a story recently that they keep thinking about that's changed the way that they understand the news. Hearing that is so meaningful. But what I always tell people is that if you care about the journalism that you hear on this podcast, the best thing you can do is subscribe to The Washington Post. Right now, our listeners can get a year of unlimited access to everything we publish for just $29. The link to that deal is in our show notes and at postreports.com. Thank you so much for considering subscribing. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 